What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Lights, Camera, Exploitation, your guide to exploitive cinema. This is your host with the motherfucking most, TJ Bowser, and joining me is my doppelganger, kangabanger from down under, Mr. Brody Kane. Howdy, howdy, my honky-tonks. And Mr. Risky Business himself, Mr. Slick Nick. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, so we got a doozy of a season two premiere for you today with Blow Up from 1966, but first, let's start off with a little slice of life. Brody? How you been? Well, I've been very well, Mr. Bears, very well indeed. Um, it's, let me just start off by saying it's uh, fantastic to be back, especially for season two. What we have lined up in store for you, I don't think you're going to be disappointed, listeners. It's going to be a very, very fun season. Um, other than that, I have been working uh, flat out, as always. Uh, while we had some time off, I was able to purchase some Blu-rays. And um, so I bought The Changeling from Severn Films, uh, Gates of Hell slash Psycho from Texas Double Feature from Dark Force, uh, Mother of Tears and Snake Eater from Diabolic. Ooh, Snake Eater, I'm very excited to uh, see that bad boy. And Mother of Tears, Mr. Bowser favorite. And last but not least, are you ready for it, Mr. Bowser? Scanner Cop 1 and 2 from... <laughs> Look at that. (laughs) Yeah. No, um, I'm Vinegar's oh and and the fear. Sorry, I fucking forgot the fear from Vinegar's and Grown. With one of the coolest slip covers. Oh yes. Um so neat. But um I'm I'm very excited for Scanner Cop one and two. I um I have not seen that film yet. I've only heard you say positive things about it. Mm -hmm. Endless endless things about it Both so films. yeah I was, I was very excited yes yes um so yeah i'm, I'm, ve- I'm very keen to uh dive in and uh check this bad boy out from video syndrome they've just been releasing nothing but great content but yeah other than that slick and nick being brother been pretty good uh few ups and downs uh i too like brody have been flat out at work lately uh things are kind of starting to go a little bit back to normal around here so i'm no longer working remotely and back in my office full time just in time to coincide with having my first ever car accident not being able to drive for a week uh luckily enough for me it was just a little bit of a fender bender so one twenty dollar taillight from a junkyard and a busted fender panel replacement later uh, <laughs> i'm back in business um gained a sexual fetish for car crashes now have you no uh i have not uh david cronenberg has not <laughs> tapped me for a sequel yet uh so <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll just have to keep our eyes out just kind of keep my eyes and ears out you know see see uh when that's gonna come around i'll head up to canada uh, <laughs> we're due for a sequel yeah. it's been 26 27 years now i think we could, <laughs> we could probably use one <laughs> what about what about you, TJ? Well, I've been busy here at Project Louder, just doing all sorts of kind of stuff. Brody started this Fatality Mortal Kombat podcast. I don't think we've talked about that, really, have we, on this show? Uh, not so much on this show, no. No. Uh, but yeah, we th- we've been uh, producing a ton of shows as of lately. We've been kind of really pushing towards a certain number of subscribers, so we're working hard to get there. But yeah, I also got a couple Blu-rays. I got more than I can probably say because I, it's probably like a weekly thing that I get new, new movies. But I definitely hit up that Vinegar Syndrome sale yesterday. I got Kevin Tenney's The Cellar. I got All-American Murder with uh, Christopher Walken, which is like, they say it's part Jallo, part Slasher. So I'm excited to see that. And then of course, I got the VSU title, Six String Samurai. And like Brody, I got the 4K Scanner Cop 1 and 2. Now those films I've been talking about probably for the better part of 
the year. I think Brody can confirm that. Uh, whenever the rumors yes. first started that they were even getting a disc release, and I was just super excited because these films were never intended to look this good, especially on 4K. So I'm just excited that, for one, they're just getting a release, but on top of that, a 4K release, a box set, and just a proper documentary as well on uh, some of these films. It's, it's it's rad. The special features look loaded as fuck. Yeah. Now, I, I also wrecked my car. I totaled my car had a deer, and unlike Nick, I did get a little chubby from it, and it was uh, pretty cool. <laughs> But no, uh, I sadly did enough damage where we had to put her to bed and uh, I said goodbye to her this morning, actually. But we got a new car in the family this morning. We picked up a uh, 2019 GMC Terrain Black Edition and it's a sexy little thing. But yeah, uh, onward and upward with all that stuff. Really looking forward to season two, like the other fellows said. We got lots of cool films. This is probably my most serious pick for this season. I'm kind of uh, relaxing a little bit, going off the beaten path, going a little bit more over the top with my picks from here on out. Brody uh, is going a little classy with his next pick as well. Nick, you're pretty classy this season as well, right? Shift! (laughs) (laughs) Any excuse to do the voice, I love it. Okay, so yes, let's get on with this week's episode, which is 1966 Blow Up. Sometimes reality is the strangest fantasy of all. of Michelangelo Antonioni speak every language. This is his first in English. What's your name? What do they call you in bed? Blow Up, starring Vanessa Redgrave, David Hemmings, and Sarah Miles. Blow Up is the most critically acclaimed film of the year and winner of two Academy Award nominations, including Best Director. Antonioni's camera never flinches at love without meaning, murder without guilt, at the dazzle and the madness of London today. You are an eyewitness to what's happening in a world where the beautiful and the bizarre take on new forms and hold new fascinations. of today, seen through Antonioni's camera, his color, his London, his first English language film. I thought you were supposed to be in Paris. I am. Someone's been killed. Yeah, I'm glad. I want you to see the cause. Blow Up, the Carlo Ponte production. And that is from director Michelangelo Antonioni, who also did The Vanquished from 1953, The Passenger from 1975, Identification of a Woman from 1982, and Beyond the Clouds in 1995. Writers Michelangelo Antonioni again and Tonino Guerrera. Together they also wrote La Avetra in 1960, La Notte in 1961, La Eclise in 1962, and Red Desert in 1964. The cinematographer was Carlo Di Palma, no relation to Brian, spelled differently, who did The Pizza Triangle in 1970, Pizza Days in 1987, Manhattan Murder Mystery in 1993, and Deconstructing Harry in 1997. And we decided that uh, Manhattan Murder Mystery is a Woody Allen film, correct, Brody? Yeah. Yes, 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 it was. Pizza days, huh? Yes. Music by Herbie Hancock. Uh, not the guy from Tommy Boy, 
but you may have heard of him before. He's also known for Hey Hey, It's Fat Albert in 1969, Death Wish in 1974, Harlem Nights in 1989, and Solidarity of Arts in 2014. We'll hear more about him later. Producers Carlo Ponti and Pierre Rouvier. Budget $1.8 million. Starring Vanessa Redgrave as Jane, who was also in Behind the Mask in 1958, Bear Island 1979, Brody's wrestled a couple bears in his lifetime, Letter to Juliet hey. in 2010, Koala Bears that is, Sarah Maya Miles as Patricia, Ryan Daughters in 1970. Sarah Miles as Patricia, who's also in Ryan Daughters from 1970, Hope and Glory in 1987, and Days of Grace from 2001. David Hemming as Thomas, who was also in Barbarella from 1968. Dario Argento's Deep Red from 1975. And Gladiator from 2000. Joaquin Phoenix, where you at? (laughs) John Castle as Bill, who was also in The Lion and Winter from 1968, Antony and Cleopatra in 1972, and RoboCop 3 from 1993. Stay tuned to Project Louder for more about that shit. Jane Birkin as The Blonde. <laughs> Brody's smiling right now. Who was also in Death of the Dial in 1978, Evil Under the Sun in 1982, and Boxes in 2007. Gillian Hills as The Brunette. What a character name. Who's also in Wild for Kicks in 1960, A Clockwork Orange in 1971, I'm sure that was a pleasant experience, and The Killer War Gloves in 1974. Peter Bowles, okay, as Ron, Stigma in 1977, The Steel in 1995, and The Bank Job in 2008, and Farushka von Ludendorff as Farushka, who's also in Flesh Color in 1978, Dorian Gray in the Mirror in 1984, and Casino Royale in 2006, and boy oh boy, Brody, read it down for us. You saucy aussie. Thomas is a London photographer who spends his time photographing fashion models, but one day he thinks he may have photographed something far more sinister, a murder. After taking pictures in the park, Thomas is horrified to find an ambiguous image lurking on the edge of the frame, which could be a shadow, but looks like a gun. The only thing clear is that the woman in the photo has appeared at his studio and wants the pictures he took. And this film fucking brought home the awards, and this is a thick section of the notes and that's with three C's. So let's start it off with the Academy Awards from the United States of America in 1967 and that is Best Director Michelangelo Antonioni he got nominated. Best Writing, Story and Screenplay Antonioni, Guerrera and Edward Bond nominated as well in there. Laurel Awards 1967, Sleeper of the Year Winner Winner, Chicken Dinner Cannes Film Festival in 1967 The Palme d'Or, Michelangelo Antonioni won that one as well. Golden Globes in the United States of America in 1967, Best English Language Foreign Film nominee. National Society of Film Critics USA, 1967, Best Film nominee. Best Director, Michelangelo Antonioni, nominee. Kansas City Film Critics Circle Awards, 1967. That's by you, isn't it, Nick? Huh? Kansas City? Isn't that where you're at? Oh, wait, Kansas City? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was weird. God damn. I, <laughs> I, I literally went out for just, I kid you not, five seconds to look because there was something that Antonioni won that he's the only director that has. Oh, okay. Basically, I went to go recheck what it was right as you did that. Yeah. So the Kansas Sorry. City Film Critics Circle Awards in 1967. Yeah, Best cool. director, Michelangelo Antonioni. Winner, winner, chicken dinner on that one. And then French. French Syndicate of Cinema Critics in 1968. Best Foreign Film, 
Michelangelo and Tonioni win a winter chicken dinner on there. And then a couple more. The BAFTA Awards in 1968. Best British Art Direction, Ashton Gorton, nominee. Best British Cinematography, Carla De Palma, nominee, not related to Brian. Best British Film, Michelangelo and Tonioni, nominee. And then the Italian National Syndicate of Film Journalists in 1968. That sounds scary. Forget about it. Uh, he won Best Foreign Director, but Michelangelo Antonioni refused to attend the award because Monica Vita lost the 1968 Best Actress Prize. Hmm. Homeboy's got oh, morals and he sticks to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to make my uh, my blunder worth it, at least, uh, <laughs> what I was looking for was um, Antonioni is one of three directors to have won the Palme d'Or, uh, Palme d'Or, Golden Lion and Golden Bear together. And he's the only director to have won all three of those, as well as the Golden Leopard. Sounds like a lot of uh, golden animals. Yeah. (laughs) So he's basically, he's won the highest prize from the Cannes Film Festival, uh, the highest prize from the Venice Film Festival, uh, as well as the Berlin International. And the Golden Leopard uh, is from Locarno, Switzerland, the Locarno International Film Festival. So he's the only director to have won the four highest awards from those four uh, festivals. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... He's good. It's been a while since we did this, but let's get physical. Okay, guys. So for Let's Get Physical this week, we got the Criterion Collection from March 28th, 2017's release. And it features a new restored 4K digital transfer with uncompressed monorial soundtrack on the Blu-ray. There it is again, baby. New pieces about director Michelangelo Antonioni's artistic approach featuring photography curators Walter Moser and Felipe Gardner and art historian David Allen Meller. Sometimes my brain just works and I can read that shit. Oh, so good blow up of blow up a 2016 documentary on the making of the film conversations from 2016 between Gardner and actress Vanessa Redgrave archival interviews with Antonioni and actor David Hemmings and Jane Birkin trailers English subtitles for the death and hard of hearing and also those who have kids plus a book featuring an essay by film scholar David Forgax and an updated 1966 account of the film shooting by Stig Borkman the questionnaire is the directors distributed to photographers and painters while developing the film in the 1959 Julio Cortazar short story on which the film is loosely based. And the film is currently available on Amazon for $20.30 or directly from Criterion for $27.96. I actually own it. I'm not going to go get it, but Brody actually seen it. It's actually uh, one of those digipack type things, uh, the those nice thick cardboard uh, side slip cover type deals. Really cool pack in that booklet. It's more of a book itself. It's really packed full of information. It's really rad. And if you uh, are really into this film, I definitely recommend that you go check that out and get the Criterion release of it. So boys, additional information. So let me just start off by saying that Blow Up was the first of three films of Michelangelo anti- anti-fuck. We've already fucked it up. <laughs> Antonioni, fuck. It's okay. I kept calling him Antonioni-o. I come out strong then and I fucked it up. Antonioni, right. Made outside Italy under a contract with producer Carlo Pontiet, MGM. And it was the most successful of his career, both commercially and critically. Blow Up was not the first project on which Antonioni, fuck, had worked in London or in English. In 1952, he shot part of the final episode of this, of his film, I Vinti, about a murder or murderer on an open piece of land in the city. But when he went back in 1965 to visit Monica Vitti on the set of Joseph Losey's Modesty 
Blaze. It was then that he found that London had completely changed. According to the American film critic Emmanuel Levy, Blow Up was inspired by the short story Las Babas del Diablo, which is The Droolings of the Devil by Argentinian writer Julio Cortezar. The film probes into the nature of filmmaking, the dialectical relationship between illusion and reality, and the politics of involvement by artists whose professional ethos require moral detachment. There you go, Nick. There you go. <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to it yeah. in a bit. But yeah, um, one of the things I also found, uh, Sean Connery was actually originally interested in playing the part of Thomas, but did end up rejecting it, saying that he couldn't understand what Antonioni was talking about, as he <laughs> wouldn't show him the full script of the movie. Apparently, he just kept showing him this brief seven-page snippet he kept in a pack of cigarettes with him. And whenever uh, Connery would keep asking for the full script, he just kept telling him no. And so eventually he just <laughs> went, well, I'm not doing the movie then. <laughs> what else we got here? So while he was in London preparing for the blow-up, Antonioni was taken to Claire Peplo. Is it Peplo-y? Peplo. Oh, well. Uh, to see an adaption of Dylan Thomas's Adventures in the Skin Trade by a small theatre in Hampstead. And he... He was captivated by the performance of the 24-year-old David Hemmings, whom he promptly cast for the lead, uh, replacing his initial choice, Terence Stamp, who had played opposite Vitti in Joseph Losey's Modesty Blaze. In an interview on the Canadian program City Lights, Hemmings was asked about this and the fact that he had noticed that Antione had a tick, a nervous habit of sitting sideways that sometimes made him look like a swan. <laughs> Hemmings is quoted by saying, What the fuck? Totally and absolutely true. I improvised around a scene that Antonioni was sitting underneath the camera and without wishing to cast horrors on his condition, he does have a tick, which is basically the head twitching. And if you're an actor giving your all to which I was giving my craft or sullen art, it is like the worst conceivable idea for the character I was playing. It must say something about my performance as the 1920s character as Dylan Thomas in The Adventures of the Skin Trade that Antonioni would come to that performance and think of me as the kind of the epitome of the 60s, which must have been the worst performance I had ever given. But he was sitting there underneath the camera ticking and I caught him out of the corner of my eye and I knew that I had failed. So I went into every conceivable gyration of lunacy in order to get his attention. I went home that night, got totally drunk, and two days later he called me and said that I had got the role. Fucking <laughs> I didn't see that as well because his, his tick was that he would shake his head in like a disapproving manner. I, I saw that as well that Hemmings uh, thought that he'd already failed it. Um so another thing I found, um, another case of the original cast being replaced later on, uh, the Yardbirds, uh, who are the band playing in the club later on uh, that Thomas walks into, um, were actually not Michelangelo's first choice for the band. The Velvet Underground oh. was actually originally set to appear in the film. Uh, it did fall through um, due to issues with the band's work permits for the UK at the time uh the in crowd were also offered the chance but they couldn't fill the spot although the guitar that jeff beck smashes during that scene was owned by the in crowd's guitarist steve howe 
who is considered one of the best guitarists of all time, along with Jimmy Page, who made it into the movie. <laughs> Uh, when Blow Up was fully finished and ready to hit the big screen, David Hemmings had not seen a single frame of the film, uh, walked into a screening room in Los Angeles and came out of the screening room with Antonioni, to which he had turned to Hemmings and said, you don't like it. When asked about this in an interview on the program, City Lights, Hemmings states, I didn't understand the picture at all and I thought the sequence, which most people say that's incredibly suspenseful, was dreadfully slow. So I was sitting on my seat and I was literally going, oh, for God's sake, just get on with it, please. And I walked out (laughs) dying. And I was standing in Hollywood, California for the first time, which for actors is incredible, especially for a young British actor struggling to make a name for himself. The epitome and the absolute of my whole self were there and I hated it, hated it, and totally didn't understand it at all. I loved it the second time I saw it, yes. Hated it because I really did not understand what was going on. And the script was only 14 pages with the original title, A Girl, A Photographer, and A Beautiful Morning, which was a title I adored. But what the thing is about the film is that what everyone might say or whatever people have said, it is very much Antonioni's picture. Huh. So that seven pages he was keeping in a cigarette pack was literally half the script. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I found so actually uh, going back to we did mention um, that we would talk again about Herbie Hancock later on. Um, Blow Up was actually the first film uh, that Herbie Hancock composed the original soundtrack for. Uh, whenever he was tapped for it, actually he was performing uh, with Miles Davis as part of the Miles Davis Quintet. At the time, um, I think it was part of the second go around of the Miles Davis Quintet. There's the two uh, that are called the, the the great lineups, basically. He was part of the second uh, for about four years. And it was about halfway through that they tapped him to do this. And this is actually what got him started doing uh, music composure for films. Anyway, In an interview with uh, Antonioni in Rome, 1969, Charles Thomas Samuels asked the question, do you think any American directors belong in the front rank? Antonioni states, I don't have any interests or favorite directors in truth. My taste changes according to my current interests. I was, however, very impressed by Easy Rider. There are many young men today who are breaking the rules of American cinema, and they interest me. I've noticed in their work the influence of underground films. This shows how fruitful that movement has been. That's actually really cool that he uh, pointed out another film that we've already done for the show before, actually, that we did back in season one. That's actually really cool. I'm glad to see Easy Rider kind of gets mentioned again. Um, So, uh, yeah. So, um, Brody did kind of mention this earlier about Terrence Stamp, but I did kind of want to mention it again just because I do really kind of want to point out a few of the things that he's been in, um, considering when I first saw his name on there as he had been you know, pegged for it after Sean Connery had turned it down. Um, And right before he had kind of found out about David Hemmings and chose him uh, for the actual final part. But Terrence Stamp uh, is actually in Superman 2, the 1980s movie Wall Street. He's actually in Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. Uh, Some people might know him from Smallville. And then two things that I found out being the giant nerd that I am, he's the prophet of truth from Halo 3, (laughs) as well as being additional voices uh, and a couple of characters, but I can't quite remember them off the top of my head from Elder Scrolls 4 Oblivion. Mm. Um, But yeah, he uh, he was originally offered that role of Thomas after Sean Connery, but was ultimately dropped when 
whenever uh, Antonioni went with David Heming, uh, David Hemmings after seeing Adventures in the Skin Trade at the play that was previously mentioned earlier. Oh so yeah, got pretty good pedigree. I just thought it was good because his name didn't stand out to me at first when I first saw it until I looked it up. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> Uh, in the same interview, uh, well, 1969 interview, uh, Samuels also asked Antonioni, with the exception of Blower, each of your films is about a woman who loses something for having placed her faith in some man. Why do you keep returning to this plot? Antonioni replied, you are making me think of this just now. It's very difficult to explain what I do. It is very much more instinctive than you realize, much, much more. For example, I was amused by the articles I read about Joseph Losey. For I know how he works. He reads a book. If he likes it, he makes a film. But if a producer says, make another film, he drops his own choice. For me, of course, it is different. But even for me, the reasons that make me interested in a subject are, how shall I say, fickle. Many times I have chosen among three stories, one for reasons that are entirely accidental. I get up and I think this one will be stupendous because the night before I had a certain dream or perhaps I put it better by saying that I had found inside myself reasons why this particular story seems more valid. That's really cool. He's got a lot of integrity as a director. I really like it. Um, so another thing that I saw um, that just kind of plays into the filmmaking aspect of this and just how much I really like Antonioni because of it. Uh, so much to the opposite of how if you're aware of it uh in oh brother where art thou the 2001 with george clooney um they had the grass and trees digitally altered uh to be browner and dustier and kind of worn out and a little almost more desert like because they wanted the movie to be that way but they filmed it in like i believe it was alabama in the middle of summer and everything was bright green so they had to digitally alter all of it um the almost the exact opposite appears in blow up in a few different ways during those scenes uh, that are shot at Marion Park, the outdoor ones where the, the murder initially takes place. Michelangelo actually had the grass physically spray painted green to better match the film, uh, because according to the onset photographer, Don McCullen, uh, in his autobiography, Unreasonable Behavior, they shot it originally and he just he hated it. He hated the way that the grass looked. So he literally had a team go out and physically spray paint all of the grass to be greener. So not only did he make it the exact opposite of how it was on Oh Brother, how they did that digitally, he physically just made them make it green. Fucking A, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, when interviewed about the meaning of Blow Up um, by Alberto Mo Mo Moreva in 1969, Antonioni said, the story is important to me, of course, but more important are the images. Elsewhere, he wrote that the photographer wants to see something more closely, but when he enlarges the object, it breaks up and disappears. So there's a moment when one grasps reality, but the next moment it eludes us that this is roughly the meaning of blow up. Um, so <laughs> my favorite little fact that I found about this movie, the one that I've been waiting to talk about this entire time. I love this. So <laughs> early on into the production, uh, actor David Hemmings, as well as a pretty good portion of the cast and crew, uh, decided that they were going to try to play a prank on Antonioni, uh, as it was one of his earlier films. Um, and as he said, at the time, it was kind of a little bit of a tradition uh, to sort of try to wind up the director to see how they would function under stress 
and things like that. Uh, they decided that they would wire up a fake explosion to make it appear as if the Rolls Royce that had been purchased from Jimmy Seville to appear as Thomas's car in the film had suffered just a massive engine explosion. And they did this by having the prop department fasten just a large number of mechanical parts, engine bits, uh, greasy, just anything covered in oil that they could, as well as a small, completely harmless to the car, but like kind of black powder explosive that would just make a really loud noise to the underside of the car. Um, and <laughs> when when David and the production crew ended up pulling off their prank, uh, they, as David said, uh, he had him driving down the car during one of the opening scenes of the film. Uh, he had a small lever in next to the seat uh, that was just, just small enough that Antonioni didn't realize that it was there, but he could reach down and set off that little black powder explosion. So he got a cue uh, from the, the <laughs> from the props department that he was ready to go. And as he's coming around this corner, he pulls the little lever, makes the really loud bang, and it just immediately drops all these oily bits of, of uh, just metal and, and just mechanical parts all out from the undercarriage of this car. And he completely pulls it to a stop. Now, um, <laughs> one of the things about this, the producer, uh, what was his name? Rouve? Rept? Rouvier? Rouvier, yes, uh, had actually purchased the car with his own money. Uh, and as David Hemmings said uh, in the interview where he spoke about this, that he believed Rouve wanted to actually take the car home for himself after the production was over, also witnessed it. So while the prank was supposed to be for Antonioni, uh, he actually thought that his brand new Rolls Royce uh, had just absolutely exploded and was a complete and total write-off at that point. Fucking so, <laughs> right? As for, as for Michelangelo, who the prank was actually intended for, apparently he completely seemed unfazed by the explosion didn't make any facial expressions, didn't say a word, just slowly stood up from his seat, walked quietly all the way across set to just all the cast and crew staring at him, waiting to see what would happen. He comes up, opens the hood, looks around, sees the car is completely fine, hears the whole crew and production and everyone start laughing behind him, looks Dave, looks David straight in the eyes and goes, you have to learn now, David, this is not a picnic. We are here to work, <laughs> which, according to David Hemmings, showed that he was just a completely serious man, not someone to be meth messed with. Methed with. And according meth with. Ricky business. Ricky business. Ricky business. Anyway. And apparently just immediately earned David's respect as a director, which I just thought was super cool. That just something, A, that funny of a story, which that would just be fantastic to hear that like John Wick they decided to just pull a prank on the director or something by just completely destroying the most expensive piece of production equipment that they bought uh it's just it, it immediately led to his respect on it and and david went on to say that it's he's one of the best directors that i ever worked for uh i remember him him saying in the uh the same interview that he uh, kind of told that story in but yeah that was my uh that was my favorite little fact i found about the film fucking a okay guys so let's talk about it <laughs> Okay, guys, so what's your favorite performance of the film? I'll go with uh, <clears throat> our lead, David Hemmings. Um, mm -hmm. Honestly, couldn't believe I've never heard of this actor until this, I, was, I was seeing this film. Um, you know, he definitely But you do own a movie that he stars in. Yeah, this is going to test me. Fuck, do, do I? You do. I, I mentioned it earlier in the show. Quick, Brody, scroll up. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. I'm like, fuck, 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 where is it? <laughs> yes, yes, deep red. 
Sorry about that, gent. Uh, folks, yeah, fucking. Profondo Russo. Deep red. I, I, I am still yet to see that. Still yet to see that. I do own it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think he really should have got more love in the film industry. I think he's an exceptional fucking actor. Oh, my God. Um, so good. Actor. He is good. Especially after watching him in this film, I mean. Like, let's just say I didn't like his character at the start of the film, but to which I thought he was an arrogant prick. But by the end of the film, I enjoyed it. And but I, he played a good arrogant prick. He did. That, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you and I talked about yeah, this before yeah. recording. Like, it. The fact that he made us dislike him that much, yet still kind of root for his. But aside from that, end, he's complex like, as fuck. The character, oh no, yeah, the, the character's well written. Antonioni can write a character, and just the way that he acts him out makes him seem so much more complex, especially for a '60s character. I feel like mm-hmm. he is just so waves above everything else, and I think that that leads to the impact of this story because some of those sequences, I could watch this motherfucker develop film all day. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it just goes to show you how great of an actor and he really is that he was able to portray this role to a uh-huh. team, like the lovable asshole to an extent. And he definitely, the director had set out a goal for him to do and he, he come through with the goods. So now Hemming, so, yeah. look at the things this way. He had, he did do things in the film that are questionable or almost did things that would have been questionable. Okay. So look at it this way. In every instance where he would have done something questionable, he was stopped by the mystery. Yes. Right. So right. his constant obsession with solving this mystery prevented him from doing all these bad things. I, 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 I don't know how you how you take that, but it just seems like the thing that always got in the way of him doing this bad thing or this bad choice was always the mystery and, and him solving that mystery. Even though it led, even though uh, there's no resolution or anything, mm-hmm. uh, it's still without without this conflict going on. There was the possibility of him doing all these other bad things if this wasn't happening. It was, yeah, it was like the mystery helped him grow to be a better person with morals in the end. There you go. It's just that it, it kind of in the end, like TJ said, with there being no resolution, he didn't get that. Exactly. Like he just did, he didn't get to that point. Um, which I remember I, while I was watching the movie, I was talking with a friend about it and kind of explaining as things was going on. Um, and one of the things that they said was, I don't know if, is there supposed to be a message to it? And I was like, I really, at least like a moral one? Yeah, I really don't know. And they're like, maybe it's probably for the best because I don't know if scumbag saves the day is the best moral message to have at the end of the film. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Cut with a purpose. <laughs> so, you know, th- we mentioned earlier the, the, uh, the ethical and moral dilemmas faced by an artist. And sometimes where you have to be cold to some of those things in order to get what you need with your work or to achieve a certain thing with your work. And that's present in this film, especially whenever he's trying to capture certain shots and the way that he interacts with certain models. He's not the nicest of people. But I think that also any performance artist or artist of any sort can understand that type of pressure and can understand the the type have seen that type of outburst before and can relate to that thing. So it's a very realistic approach to the character. And yes, you may hate him, but that's the cold, hard reality of the fact and the industry. Everything you're going to come across is not going to be stiff dicks and airplanes. There's going to be dickheads. There's going to be people that are mean. And that's just the fact of the matter. So I I think that, yeah, Hemmings all the way. (laughs) Uh, I think I might be the only one 
that had one different. Uh, he did come in as a close second. Uh, I was actually originally going to choose him um, as my favorite, but I did end up actually kind of really getting drawn into sort of the mystery that whenever Jane, Vanessa Hargrave's character gets involved, just the weird sort of almost wishy-washy, you can't quite tell where she's at at the start, where she's kind of coming from. Because when he's first photographing uh, Jane and the unnamed murder victim uh, in the park, it does, you know, initially, you're kind of on her side a little bit. There's this, as far as we're, you know, as far as she's seeing at least, David Hemmings' character of Thomas is just this weird dude in a park taking pictures of her with a guy. Uh, so, you know, whenever she kind of comes out, I'm like, dude, what are you We're doing? Public, like, please. get out We're of here. Leave me privacy. alone. Like, give me the, like, <laughs> like yeah. Um, and, he, and, he, and he's just like, no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, like, you're kind of on her side. And then there's just this sort of weird back and forth kind of tug and tug of war between the two characters of like who's actually in the right for a good while um especially because of how morally conflicted why did she feel compelled to take her shirt off exactly well like the whole time i was watching that entire sequence of events i'm like what the hell is happening exactly right now he didn't do anything to really elicit that i think that she assumed that right and i didn't quite get it until i was looking back afterwards that he had purposely given her the wrong yep. film reel whenever he was like all right fine geez put your freaking clothes back on that's not what i'm going for here all right calm down you can have your film reel and i'm like all right so he's not a douchebag and then he gives her the wrong one on purpose I'm like uh, what are you guys doing <laughs> what is this like dance going on around here but i just kind of think at the end out of it but giving her just the wrong one could lead to her coming back again which is what he ultimately wanted right and then she played off of him with that by giving him the false phone number at the end before leaving so that he couldn't, you know, get back. Neither of them gave each like, other hey, what they wanted. So. The, what they wanted out of it. Yeah. And so it just I don't know. There was something more about her character. But that, that can be said about the entire movie. We're never given what we want. Exactly. And Maybe I do think cocktails. I don't know. Just to, yeah, that's what this <laughs> yeah, entire movie is. Exactly. But yeah, I, I just think out of that, it was a very close for me between David Hemmings and Vanessa Hargrave. I just think that I was a little bit more interested in Jane's character than Thomas. And, but that may just be bias on my part, because again, and this is I'm in this as a compliment to David Hemmings for playing the part and making me feel this way. Yes, I hated thomas i just didn't like him by the end of the movie i was like you tried your best but i really don't care that you didn't succeed at all like i wasn't fully rooting for you but i wanted to but i, I don't know that's just me i guess so okay. holy oh set piece uh his apartment is fucking amazing i uh, wouldn't even call it an apartment uh what do you call it a loft a studio. a studio it's it's so many things wrapped into one and we spend a considerable amount of time within this set piece and you really get to explore the ins and outs of it and there's just so much to it and it's just so cool and like i said we get a lot of shots of an interior shots of him developing film and him traveling through different rooms and stuff. And we also get to see other people performing in various rooms throughout the studio. And it's just such a cool place. And it's one of the cooler uh, set pieces I've actually seen on film. Boys? He's got a pretty cool wall handle. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, 100%. <laughs> pretty much everything that you just fucking you say wall handle but look at all the extra bracing as well within the interior structure that is fair it was just during the point when i was watching the film whenever i ended up texting you about it i was like why does this man just have a handle on his wall it it just seemed funny because he just came out and grabbed it it didn't seem close to anything wasn't close to the stairs like this man just he's got a handle on his wall (laughs) that he can just hold on to 
Yeah. Think about life. <laughs> no, the, the cool thing about, like like you said, we spend the majority um, of this film in his apartment. So what the director was able to succeed very well was to fill each frame up inside with like something different, like in the background or each room had something there like clothes or, you know, just something there just to fill up the, the, the space of the, each framing of the interior shots. So, yeah, I really, I really like that. Um, especially I love the glass, the glass panes um, where the models are at the start. I was about to say. Very, very, very um, great, great stuff, yeah, which I do mention in my favourite scene slash shot, so I'll save it for then. Fair enough. I won't go further into it as well because I think I might say some similar things to what you did. I really did like that that window. Uh, I think mine um, is actually going to be from the ending. Um, I really enjoyed the tennis court set uh, at the, the final scene uh, with Thomas, it felt like a set piece within a set piece because it felt like a stage play for him, like not for the audience, for the character. It really felt like a set within a set. And especially Fourth going back to what I meant. Yeah. Uh, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, how much work they put into those outside scenes with him literally having the fucking grass itself spray painted to be greener. And then just having this weird set of these mimes playing tennis or they're pretending to play tennis. And he walks up and he's not sure what to make of it. The same as the audience isn't sure what to making it, but make of it. But somehow it doesn't feel like it's intended for you as the audience member. It's meant for him. And he gets enraptured by it and he watches half the game and everything of it. It felt so intricately put together, but not for you. Like that kind of, of like I'm looking at something that's not for me. That's not meant for me. That's meant for someone else. And you're kind of looking at it from an outside perspective and it's kind of got that weird sort of disconnect to it. And I really loved that aspect of it. And it probably made it the most memorable part of the movie for me. Uh, but yeah, it, it just I loved that tennis court. I really liked just everything that they did with it and how much it felt like they put into something that just was not meant for you specifically to enjoy as the viewer. Fucking A, man. So favorite scene slash shot. I will have to say, I do want to mention before I, I say mine, uh, the, the, the split screen type shot that we get of the camera sitting on like the trunk and then the, the girl off to the left with, uh, some action going on is very De Palma esque. You'll see that many films, including Carrie and Just to Kill and stuff like that. Uh, I think it's, that was just such, so cool because you can see where some of our directors can take that and, uh, use it on their own. But the entire sequence of, the park and the way it was filmed, it just encapsulated such a really beautiful area. And I think that, I don't know, there's just something that about that setting and that place and the way that it was shot has made it haunting, kind of. just eerie. Yeah. I don't know. That's that, for some reason, that, that park's going to stay in my mind. No, I can absolutely see that. I can get behind that. Yeah. I was say, it, it somehow felt for as open as it was almost claustrophobic and just the way that the It's because it's so long and it, you don't like, see end. You don't see the end of it. It just exactly goes, yeah. even the opening shot with like the horizon line and everything you don't see anything past that you get the grass it feels them, like a dream the, the trees on the side and then, yeah it like it just like, uh she like laughs and like giggles and like like scampers away and just like kind of turns and then like makes weird noises and just like kind of fucking 
Wally gags off into the fucking distance and disappears over the mm-hmm. hill. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? It's so strange. Yeah, it seemed really weird. Is she laughing? Like, is she crying? What's going I on? I know. <laughs> I think it kind of, yeah, it kind of made you wonder whether, like, like who... I think that kind of played into the actual murder plot itself of, like, by the end of it, you're almost surprised that the guy, the nameless guy, who you were, who, at least for me, um, and I think this might just be because I'm, I'm getting you, I'm getting used to the freaking Jallo now. <laughs> so I'm expecting him to like try to stab her or something, you know, because yeah. I'm aware of the plot. You know, he catches a murder in his pictures. So, you know, we're watching the scene, getting that whole weird claustrophobic vibe. I'm like, oh, this this guy's about to try to stab her or something. And then pretty much nothing happens. You think you miss it. And then they come back and holy shit. He's the one who got fucking killed. Like it plays into the subversion, and I think that sort of weird dream state almost kind of feel to the area of it just well, helps with. Yeah, we'll talk about it later. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> I I just think that the, that weird kind of disconnected feeling that you get from it almost being a dream just kind of helps kind of play into so, the subversion and keep kind of like Argento film. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Brody. What about you? Um, yeah, no, like I, I love the whole entire scene of him blowing up the photos um, just to reveal that creepy face in the bushes. Um, hence the title of the film. It's a good little, good little uh, visual representation of the title. So yeah, no, it's just an intense scene, you know, um, especially without using any music or not so much atmos, but yeah, but just especially when we're waiting to see the big reveal. But I do have to give a special mention to, as I said, to the previous question, um, the five mo- uh, five models lining up behind the tinted panes of glass in the studio, and then we dolly from left to right to reveal them spread out across the canvas. I thought that was just a beautifully, beautifully panned shot. So yeah, no, I'm, yeah, that's it for me. That's fair. Um, Short and <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to actually pick the same scene that I did. Uh, whenever you mentioned the uh, the models and all of that, I thought that was going to be it. Mine was literally him piecing together the murder from the blowups as well. Uh, the, just for the silent, it felt organic. It just felt natural that, you know, it, there's no music and big sing or anything to it. It's just kind of a slow realization for him of I've taken a picture of more than I thought I did. Um, and then... You know, him kicking the the would-be models out of his uh, studio to just go, you know, no, I need to work on this. <laughs> I've got something here. Uh, yeah, no, it was just, it was one of my favorites. I think my favorite shot, though, still probably falls into that tennis court with, with the mimes playing and him just kind of leaning against the fence, watching it completely enraptured by the whole thing. It's probably my favorite shot. It, I just, I felt it was really well composed. Um and it kind of kept you focused on him uh, rather than the scene itself, um, which is kind of the opposite of, you know, his intention, which I think helped play into that whole, this isn't for you. This is for him. There is no real, you know, you're not going to get any resolution out of this. The same as he's not. So, I don't know. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I had pretty similar ones. Uh, yeah, um, I did really, really enjoy that shot with the models through the uh, the panes of glass, though. Whenever he was uh, says, tell the birds to come down when they're all standing there and he's talking to his assistant. That's a good one. So, favorite effect slash death. Now, that, can that be really applied to this film with... The de- The only death that happens in it happens off screen. Uh, like, not even just off screen, but we only find out about it, you know, from the picture. And then he goes back, finds the body. And then even when he comes back, there are, 
like to see it. There's art, like there's no real effects to it other than he's laying there with his eyes stark open. Uh, you don't see like a bullet wound really or anything, but I do believe it is revealed uh, that he was shot because you know the gun from the, the picture and the and the blow ups and everything. Um, yeah, I, approaching this one, I didn't really go for death scene. I just kind of went for my favorite effect on it, uh, which was actually an audio one. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record because once more, I'm talking about that tennis court scene. But as he slowly kind of transitions away from paying attention to it, whenever he kind of plays into it for just a moment and he pretends to throw the ball back to the mimes because they've acted like it's gone out. And as he throws it back in while the camera's facing him and you don't see the scene, you hear the audio of the tennis ball getting hit through the court as he's walking away before it fades out and just leaves him gone. And it's just this open field of grass. I just the use of the audio for the effect in that scene was probably my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the once you no longer see the mimes pretending, Whereas you couldn't hear anything before, they were all silently pretending to play tennis and it turns around to face him. And now you hear the match going on when you can't see it before he disappears. I don't know. I just really like how that kind of played it. It was like every one of your senses contrasted itself right at the end of the movie. And then you weren't even sure what to feel like. You know, we can say death. You know, I'll change this question. Uh, I think that the fact that they use the way that they utilize death in the in the film as part of the, the mystery and uh, that kind of removes any evidence and you know the crime itself kind of removes the crime itself uh it's really cool it's it's very unique uh to something like this and it's i don't know cuz like he gets the picture and he he sees the body and he's almost certain that you know this is this is the way that i'm going to prove myself and this is the way i'm going to prove that this happened and then it's gone and like you uh we'll have to talk about it in the story the thoughts on story guys yeah. Jump on into that um, one. So, like yeah, you mentioned, wow. that scene, that the uh, the outro scene there, and mm-hmm. uh, the sound of the actual tennis ball being hit makes you question everything. And is it the things he experiencing real? Did he actually experience anything to begin with? Uh, right. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's almost like a our intro to a rubber reality film, right, Brody? Absolutely. It definitely comes full circle on itself. I mean, he starts off as this normal photographer and ends as a normal photographer. So it's like he's gone on this roller coaster journey of like having something that could potentially boost him to stardom or get his name out there even further. But then it just drops right off the cliff and he's back to square one. And I think seeing those mimes was basically more of a human, a human like, human-esque type thing of emotions where he's like i'm just like any other normal other people here weird just all these different variations of um people i think he i i honestly think that a little bit of his arrogance got the better of him and he was thinking that he was much more than other people and then by the end of the film he's brought back to earth and yeah he um yeah he's he's basically one with the normal folks again in a sense right it's he's just like everybody else i i I think um kind of yeah kind of a little bit of of what i took from it as well uh especially in tj that you mentioned you know he's kind of starting to really think you know this this is going to put him out there you know solving this this mystery and everything of the murder um and you know and he goes to get the evidence for it and that's gone. And like you said, it almost sort of erases the crime. He 
he can't find Jane anymore after he follows her into that club with the Yardbird scene and he comes out and she's just missing. Um, you know, he's got that piece of the broken of Jeff Beck's broken guitar, which is just probably and I love how famous things ever. He he goes through the trouble of taking it and running out of the club just to then cast it aside for it to be left on the street for nobody to understand the value of it. And I think that that mm-hmm. almost now I I'll let you finish and then I'll t- kind of talk about the other part of the film that I want to keep going. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. No, you're perfectly fine. Um, but yeah, no, I, it, it definitely did play into that uh, of he, he thinks that this one thing that's just, he's so excited for, he's like, I'm going to solve this murder. This is, I'm already famous, but this is just going to put me on a whole nother level. I'm going to be so much better than everybody else, like Brody said. And then he, he gets brought back down to reality. I I really like how it kind of played into that final shot, the outro shot of the movie of not only was the crime almost entirely erased, he can't prove the pictures. There is no body. He can't even find the girl, any of that. And then the final shot is him walking out and he doesn't even get off screen before he just literally fades off the shot and it's just grass. He completely almost just sort of disappears and becomes a non-entity just like the crime itself by the end of the movie, it feels like. Where it's it kind of feels like, uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie, it's Walking Phoenix, you know, but uh, you were never really here. Yes, yes, I've seen that. Um, it kind of had that sort of same feeling to me of you've done all of this, you've gone through so much, but in the end, did it really even matter? Were you ever really here? That got like, yeah. And I just, and that might even be a part of the impact and takeaway is that movie may have very well uh, been partly inspired by this at at the very least. Um, But yeah, uh, so go ahead, uh, TJ, with what you were uh, going to say on yours. I think that's something that we really haven't touched on at all is that there's a whole other aspect to this film. And I, I kind of briefly touched upon it whenever we talked about the character and the performance of uh, Hemming's character. And there's an overarching theme of the artist and voyeurism and to portray the character of the artist and how and somehow intertwine that with a story of voyeurism. Because a lot of his scenes, whenever he sees women, he's not actually doing anything sexual. He's looking at them. He's The scene whenever he walks in on his uh, buddy having sex with his girlfriend. He stands and he watches, and she invites him to do that. He stands and he watches her. Even whenever he's taking pictures in the park, he's taking pictures of people making out, of people in love. He's a vo- it's voyeurism runs rampant. He's he sees these girls naked, but he doesn't necessarily do anything with it other than look. I think that, that there's a theme of in this film that runs the whole way through it. I, I don't again. I don't know what that means. But it's there, it's prevalent, and I think it lends itself to the story. And I think that there's an interest there and his buddy's girlfriend that never gets flushed out. But then again, the story and the mystery itself never gets flushed out. So I think that's what makes part of this film so unique and so wonderful. And it's I think that it also lends to that character. that Because we see throughout this film, we see him collecting or, or attempting to collect art of various forms. And he doesn't fucking care what it is he just wants to collect art for the name of collecting art and lots of people can relate to that who are in that hobby or in that mindset that that's totally a habit one could form but he his life is just so encapsulated by being an artist that it has overtaken every aspect of his personality and somehow this voyeurism has become an overarching theme in his life Fucking A. 
Oh, yeah. That was nice. That was fucking nice, mate. Thank you. So, impact and takeaways. You know, we could talk about how this inspired Brian De Palma's blowout uh, because it's essentially a very similar film with audio. And uh, yeah, I recommend that Criterion also has a sweet release that I have of that as well. But we talked about how it inspired Argento's themes. We talked about it inspired De Palma's camera work and some of the way he composes things. I mean, even Adam Marcus, whenever I posted that I bought this film, said on Facebook how much he loved this film. So this is widely loved by many directors. And this is a filmmaker's film. And if you love film, you'll love this film. It's it's truly, it's truly cool. I, I'm happy we came upon it, and I'm happy that we chose it for our, our uh, first episode of season two. Brody? Absolutely. Yeah, there's really much more to this uh, film that we could potentially keep talking about for days end on end, but for the fact that we yeah, we were able to be uh, um, talking about it for our first episode, it's fan-fucking-tastic. And, and you're absolutely right. It is a filmmaker's film. I mean – it's so simple and yet so effective. It just goes to show, like, you can absolutely, you know, you've made yourself as a shit art director if you can visually create something without fuck all dialogue. And, and I think this film really elaborates on that extremely well. So, so yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed this film. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely ended up enjoying it as well. Um, it kind of seems like one of those things, and I kind of got this from doing some of the research and looking into how how well it was received. Um, one of the things I've kind of heard recently, and this will probably be a little bit more of a music fan thing, um, but with the passing of uh, MF Doom uh, last year, that people would always refer to him as your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. This kind of movie seems almost like it's your favorite director's favorite movie yeah kind of thing and whenever i watched it um i didn't have a physical copy at the time i know i told you i think about this tj that uh, i ended up uh, it is available for rent uh, on youtube and youtube uh for what it's worth at least will have the comments still open on a lot of movies so you can just see what other people are saying about it while you're watching it and pretty much almost every single one of the comments that I read was revisiting this one. I watched it back in film class <laughs> uh, in this teacher's class. Uh, and I've probably seen this like a hundred times now. And I keep coming back to it because of that. And, and I think that really plays into it. I think you're right. It's a filmmaker's movie. It's someone who or someone. It is a movie for someone who wants to make movies almost it is kind of what it seems like. But even then, you don't have to be an aspiring filmmaker to enjoy it. If you just like film, you will very much like this movie. Fucking A, brother. Okay, so let's rate the first episode of season two. And the rating for this week is Hidden Faces in Pictures. How many out of five? Brody Kane, start us off. I'll give it a 3.8. Okay. Nick? We are on the same wavelength today, Brody. This is getting weird, man, because I was going to give it a 3.8 as well. (laughs) (laughs) Same scenes, same man. Yeah, no, I'll I'll stick with it. I'll stick with it. 3.8. I'll also give it a 3.8. So that's a uh, light camera exploitation score of 3.8 out of five hidden faces in picture. So next episode is Brody Pick. Oh, yes, it is one of my all-time favorites. uh, Starring Christopher Walken, uh, the King of New York. Excellent. So I'm very, very excited to share this one with you boys. Now, now that is an Arrow release that we'll be doing the uh, physical yes, portion of? Yes, yes, it is an Arrow release. 
Yes. That means I get to watch it on the Arrow website. I can make use of my subscription now. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yeah. So I am excited to watch and cover that film with you guys next week. But until then, head on over to ProjectLouder.net to consume even more awesome content and check out other great podcasts on the Project Louder network, such as the Big Bad Beetle Bros, where you can also listen to more stuff from uh, our very own Ricky Bidness. Slick nickel to <laughs> Fatality on. Mortal Kombat, where you can listen to more stuff from our very own Doppelganger, Kangabanga, Brody Kane, Ghoulies Unflushed, a unofficial Ghoulies podcast, Goran Moore, where you can catch Brody and I talking about horror movies and so much more, Jerk the Curtain, a wrestling podcast, Joints and Joysticks, Rabbit Hole, Rants from the Black Lodge, Somewhat Supernatural, if you want to talk about spooky stuff, The Machine Shop, if you're into special effects, the TJ Bowser Power Hour, where I interview people about film or who make film, Wicked Wednesdays, where they talk about spooky stuff and girly stuff, and of course, Wrestling Ruined, where they talk about the worst years of wrestling. You can find that over on projectlouder.net or on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or Audible, or anywhere else you consume audio-only content. We also have YouTube, Twitch. Check that out at Project Louder. And thank you for listening to this episode. See y'all next week. Bye-bye. Is your doppelganger kangabanger signing out saying sayonara, bitches? <laughs> Slick next time. Thank you for tuning back in for season two. See you guys next week. 